Let's pray together. Father, I pray that today we would hear your word and we would not be blinded by familiarity, but that we would see glory here, that we would see Jesus here. I'm praying you'd you'd help us to see him and that our seeing of him here, our seeing of you and your powerful plan that is not subject to the whims of humans, but uses the whims of humans as part of your great plan. Lord, that as we marvel at your power, as we marvel at Jesus, that that we would carry that with us into the rest of this week and whatever it's going to hold, and that we would cherish Jesus well, that we would love Jesus well, that we would love him well by loving others. So, Lord, I'm I'm asking here for fruit to come out of this time. I'm asking for your Holy Spirit to empower us as we come to look at your word now. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. When did Nelson Mandela die? The correct answer is 2013. But if you asked around, there's a significant amount of people who have a memory of him dying while he was in prison back in the 1980s. They're convinced it happened, and they're surprised to find out that it actually didn't happen until several decades after that time. And psychologists have begun to research this phenomenon of of a group of people remembering something incorrectly. And they've called it the Mandela Effect, named after this very noteworthy case when a group of people share a memory of something that, that never actually happened. There's a number of examples of the Mandela effect. It's some fun reading on on the internet, see what kinds of things come up. Some of them are fairly unimportant. For example, not once in the Star Wars movies does Darth Vader say, Luke, I am your father. He just doesn't say that. The actual line is, no, I am your father. Another example is, not once does Mr. Rogers ever sing, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Not once. He says, it's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. You can look it up on YouTube like I did this week to convince myself that this was actually true. Now, these these are small examples of things that don't really matter. But what, what what if we experience the Mandela effect for something that was fairly important? What if for hundreds of years we had false memories together about something as important as the birth of Christ. I mean, how could that happen? We all know know the story of Christmas so well, right? I mean, the passage we just read, it's read every year. We know it really well. We know that Mary and Joseph set out by themselves on a journey to Bethlehem. Mary was nine months pregnant and so rode on the back of a donkey. We all know that they got into Bethlehem very late on on the very night that she was going into labor. And that everybody turned them away, leaving them no place to find rest except a stable outside of town where it was just them and some animals. And there, with nothing but the kind of stuff that you can find in a stable, Mary gave birth. And it was just her and Joseph until the shepherds showed up and the wise men with them, and together they worshiped the Christ child. And together with the shepherds was a little boy who decided the best way to calm this new baby and mother was with an extended drum solo. <laughs> we all know that's the story, right? Okay, so forget the part of the little drummer boy. I think we know, I think we know that's made up. But the rest of the story that I just told, that's, that's true, right? We know that's true. We know that's the Christmas story. Except what if it isn't? What if many of the details that I just shared with you are nowhere to be found in the pages of Scripture? What if some of the things we remember about the Christmas story never actually happened? 
And what if what really happened is different but better? And this different and better story of Christmas invites us deeper into the realness of the word becoming flesh. We're going to answer those questions today. In case you have missed it, we're taking a break from our series in First Peter. We're meditating on the birth of Christ, proclaiming this word from Luke chapter 2. That's where we're going. And, and let's just answer this question first. Why Luke chapter 2? When we think of the Christmas story, we often go to Luke chapter 2. We think, you know, in those days, Caesar Augustus came. Why, why is that? Well, it's because Luke records the most details for us out of any of the four Gospels about the birth of Jesus. Matthew tells us Mary gave birth to a son and Joseph called his name Jesus. And after he was born, the wise men came and worshipped him. That's all, that's all Matthew tells us. Mark and John tell us nothing about the birth of Jesus. So pretty much everything we know about the events surrounding his birth, his nativity, come from Luke. Now we're starting in Luke 2. This is obviously not ideal because Luke 2 builds on Luke chapter 1, which is full of anticipation that after long years of silence, God is on the move and God is up to some exciting stuff. After 400 years after the last prophet Malachi spoke, the angel Gabriel shows up to Zechariah quoting the prophet Malachi saying that promised forerunner is going to be your son and and Zechariah is struck dumb and and his wife miraculously uh, in her old age is able to have a child and then the angel shows up to Mary and gives her the promise and 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 Mary goes to see Elizabeth and and John the Baptist in, in her womb leaps for joy when he, he hears Mary's voice and, and, and Mary bursts forth in this beautiful prophetic song and, and then John the Baptist is born and, and Zechariah's tongue is loosed and, and he bursts forth in this beautiful prophecy and so chapter one is, is, is just this huge chapter, 80 verses and it's just full of anticipation that the mighty God is finally moving to keep his ancient promises and to save his people. And with that as a background, chapter 2 is so jarring when we look at verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This is our first stop in the passage, the decree. And what what a jarring stop it is. After angels and prophecies, we are reminded that Israel is not a free country at this point. In fact, Israel wasn't even a country. It was a group of Roman provinces, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, under the thumb of foreign overlords. It really was captive Israel, as we sing in that song. Caesar Augustus was the first Roman emperor. Rome had been a republic for, 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 for hundreds of years. And after civil wars going back and forth, a single leader, Caesar Augustus, seized absolute power for himself and became the first Roman emperor. And around this powerful man grew up what was essentially a cult of emperor worship. We have inscriptions from, from this era talking about the birth of Caesar Augustus as being good news for the world. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? He was said to be the son of one of the gods, himself a god incarnate the savior of the world. He brought peace and hope to the war-torn Roman Empire. It's interesting, isn't that? Some of the things that were said about Caesar Augustus, things that that uh, Luke's readers would have had in mind as they read about Caesar Augustus. And Caesar Augustus sends out a decree that the world should be registered. So in other words, a census, he wants the people in all the provinces of the empire to be registered so the government knows who's there. And Luke grounds this very firmly in history when he says in verse 2, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So in other words, this is not once upon a time in a land far, far away. No, this is history. And Luke grounds it in, in history that the people of his day would have understood and would have remembered. Historians today aren't quite sure exactly what's going on here because of our different records of the ancient world. There's some questions here, but... There's no doubt, I mean, Luke would not have written this in the memory of people who lived through this if he was just making it up, right? Like, you don't write details like this when people are alive and could say, um, 
actually Luke there there was no census no like he's grounding this in history that the people in his day would have remembered and verse 3 tells us all went to be registered each to his own town this is interesting this is another one of those things that makes historians scratch their heads because it's not till about a hundred years later that we have a record of a census that requires people to go back to certain towns And in that case, it's because they owned property there. So that leads some people to guess that Joseph still owned property in Bethlehem. There's other evidence from archaeology, just looking at pottery pieces, that suggests that there was a a migration of people from the Bethlehem area to the Nazareth area right around this time, which would line up with the idea that, that Joseph still had pretty tight connections in Nazareth. Sorry, in, in Bethlehem. Um, he may have still had family there. There may have just been a Jewish custom that you just went to your hometown. There, there's some questions there, but, but again, there's no doubt Luke, a strong historian, he writes, I mean, you think of the book of Acts, much of what we know about ancient seafaring comes from the, the detailed records Luke keeps. He's a fantastic historian writing these words within the memory of the people who experienced them. And, and he's grounding this in rock-solid history. So here's the big, the big picture in these first two, two and a half verses that, that often gets lost is after all the stuff in chapter one about God and his ancient plans and purposes, we're reintroduced to Caesar, big, large, in charge, the most powerful man in the world, looked to as a savior, even a God. And he issues a decree and little tiny Mary and Joseph just two of his many subjects of his vast empire, unknown to him, are forced to uproot their lives and go on a journey at the whims of this leader. So who's, who's important and who's not important humanly? It's, it's pretty clear, right? So that brings us to the second step in this story, which is the journey, verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who, important detail, was with child. Now, we've already dealt in in the first part of of Luke, Luke chapter 1, of Mary and the virgin birth, that she was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they had come together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And he tells us that she went with Joseph, who went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Bethlehem. The language here, even just the tiny little notes, show us Luke's attention to detail. If you were to look on a map and you were to see Nazareth and Galilee in the north and Bethlehem and Judea in the south, you would be inclined to say that they went down to Bethlehem. Because we tend to think of north as being up and south as being down. But in the ancient world, they didn't think that way. They thought in terms of simple elevation. And Nazareth was several hundred feet lower than Bethlehem. Over a three-day journey, you had to climb. So literally, literally go up. Literally up to Bethlehem. And we also see Luke's attention to detail in that he says he went to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. City of David would have been a local term for the locals in Bethlehem that they would have referred to because they knew this was David's hometown. If you were to go outside and talk about the city of David, people might have thought, what? They might have thought Jerusalem. So that's where Luke says the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. He gives the local name, and then he gives the name that most other people outside of that area would have known about. And Joseph goes up because he's of the house and lineage of David. So he's, he's from that area, and he's from that family line. And so we've already talked about what may have brought him there. But what's, what's really important here is, is that Luke's telling us he's of the house and lineage of David. This is important because the Messiah was promised to be of the house and lineage of David. So we know Joseph being in the line of David means that as, as Jesus' adopted father, he's giving Jesus a legitimate legal claim to the throne of David. 
legally, according to all the understanding of Jewish law, as his adopted son, Jesus has a legal claim to the throne. And this is also important that they get to Bethlehem because the prophets foretold that the Messiah, like his father David, would be born there. Micah 5.2 But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth a ruler in Israel. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So, God uses Caesar's edict to get Mary and Joseph into Bethlehem to make sure this ancient prophecy gets fulfilled. You don't see Joseph saying to Mary, you know, Mary, I'm, a, I'm an heir to the throne, or I, I guess I might be, and that means our child, and, and, and the prophecies say this, so we'd better get to Bethlehem. And we, they're, they're not putting these pieces together, but God is putting these pieces together for them. Through the whims of Caesar, God is moving pieces into place to fulfill his ancient promises. It looks to the world like Mary and Joseph are just pawns in Caesar's plans, but the reality is Caesar is just a pawn or a player in God's plans. Appearances can be deceiving. And so off Mary and Joseph go and they go to Bethlehem. Now it's important to note what the story tells us, what Luke tells us, and what Luke doesn't tell us. It tells us in verse 4, he went up, verse 5, she went with him, and that she was with child. That's it. It doesn't say anything about a donkey. I mean, could Mary have ridden on a donkey? Maybe. I mean, it's a three-day journey, but we should just note the donkey's not in the Bible. Uh, It also doesn't say that they were alone. We've got the kind of the picture in our heads of the, 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 the lone, you know, the man leading a lone donkey all by themselves. I mean, it's actually maybe not likely that they would do that. Traveling was dangerous. You tended to travel in groups and caravans, especially if there was a, a group of people that had gone from Bethlehem to Galilee. It's almost certain Joseph wasn't the only one having to make this journey. Uh, there's even other reasons to think of them as making this journey together. I remember hearing just firsthand uh, a lot of the research for this message. I, I can point you to books and scholars and guys that lived in the Middle East. Th- this one's just offhand, but it was someone who told me this that they, as either they or someone they know, was talking to some people in the Middle East area of the world about the journey of Mary and Joseph. And, and these Middle Eastern people said, oh, there's no way they would have gone alone. The ladies in her town wouldn't have let a pregnant woman ride off with just a man to take care of her. And they, they would have sent some people to, to, to help take care of her. Now, again, the text doesn't say that, but it doesn't say that didn't happen. So it's just a reminder that we don't read more or less into here than is here. We don't read our, our years of traditions into the text. There's a question of why Joseph brought Mary with him in the first place. Typically, it would have been men, heads of households that needed to register. We should remember there's a, there's a scandal surrounding Mary's pregnancy. Maybe she wasn't safe by herself without Joseph to vouch for her. So maybe they did go alone. We don't know. But it's, it's good to, to, to just know what we don't know and to know what we do know. What we do know is they went up to Bethlehem. It also does not say that Mary was nine months pregnant. It says she was with child. It's unlikely they would have waited till the very end of her pregnancy to make this journey. Most women at nine months of pregnancy aren't up for a ride in the car, let alone a donkey, assuming there was a donkey. Here's what we do know for sure. We know for sure they did not get to Bethlehem the night that she was giving birth. That's a common part of the story that we've been told. We know for sure that's not true. Because, because, what does verse 6 say? And while they were there, 
the time came for her to give birth. That's what it says. While they were already in Bethlehem, the days for her to give birth were completed. That's another way of of translating this. So it doesn't say, as they got close to Bethlehem, the time for her to give birth approached, and so they really rushed the last little bit and got there just in time. It says, in fact, the opposite, that while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So the whole idea of Mary and Joseph frantically knocking on doors as they rush around the town of Bethlehem trying to find a place to stay is, is, is not true. Certainly not true. Someone invented this idea later on. It got stuck in people's heads. But the Bible tells us Mary and Joseph traveled to Bethlehem and that they were already there when the time came for her to give birth. How long were they there? Days? Weeks? We don't know. But we just know what it says. They were already there. And that brings us to our third stop, which is the birth. Recorded in fairly sparse detail in verse 6 and 7. We've just read verse 6. The time came for her to give birth. Verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. We should notice that Luke doesn't embellish this with all kinds of details. He simply said she gave birth. We think of of a similar example where the, the gospel writers simply say that Jesus was crucified. They don't have to embellish it because the ancient world understood these things. See, we're so used to babies, you know, moms going off to a hospital. It's clean and professional and sanitary and coming out with a baby. And I'm so glad I live in a time when dads are invited to be a part of that process. I was there through the whole process with all three of my kids. I know some of you in the room had children during a time when dads weren't even welcome in. It's very sanitary and sterile and you go in and you come out with a baby. But the ancient world knew all about giving birth. Giving birth was hard and painful and bloody. The men would be ushered out of the place of birth, but no doubt they could still hear the screams. They knew how many women died in childbirth, losing their lives as they brought a new one into the world. Maternal death was was huge in the ancient world. No doubt the men stood outside and prayed the only thing they could do. So one of the things that struck me so much as I was through the experience, the process of all three of my children coming into the world is how vulnerable of a process it is and how powerless you are to do anything. So you just lie there and hear your baby's heart beat and pray that it's ever going to be okay. And, and, and I had this sense of wonder that anyone makes it into the world safely. How much more vulnerable the ancient world, no heart rate monitor, no painkiller, no ultrasound. Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. It's noteworthy that Luke says that it was her firstborn. We know Mary had other children. She did. Jesus was her firstborn, conceived by the Holy Spirit. And as firstborn, there's a, think of the bigger theological picture of Jesus being the firstborn of all creation. Jesus being heir to David's throne. There's some, some beautiful truth there. Now Luke says next in verse 7, she wrapped him in swaddling cloths. Now this is an interesting detail because this is just what people did with babies then. It was a tradition. There was a custom in this era. They would wrap them in swaddling cloths to, to keep their limbs straight because they, they thought that's something that, that you should do. And straighten out the baby and they'd wrap it to, to keep its limbs straight. This is nothing out of the ordinary. So it wasn't like Mary was doing something unique. This is what they did. Luke mentions it because the angel's going to mention it to the shepherds in the next passage that we're not going to get to this morning. The angel's going to say, you're going to find him wrapped in swaddling cloths, which is a clue that he was just born. Okay, So you will find him wrapped in swaddling cloths is kind of like uh, if they said today, you're going to find him with the hospital bracelet still on his ankle. Okay, that's, that's part of the sense here. He's, he's fresh. He's, he's just been born. 
And so Luke mentions it here to help cue up the announcement to the angels. And verse 7 goes on to say, and we're going to spend some time on these words, that she laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Here's the point that for hundreds of years, numbers of people in the West have gotten fairly confused about what actually happened that night. It's very interesting. If you look look at what uh, Christians in the East, people like from this part of the world have believed, it's it's more in line with what I'm going to say to you here. But in the West, separated by culture, we've, we've gotten a few things wrong here. When we hear manger, we know a manger is a feeding trough for animals. And so we think animals are kept where? In the West. Barns or stables. So we assume Jesus was born in a stable because there was no room. We hear the word in and think hotel. So there's no vacancy sign up. And they knocked on some doors. No one invited them in. And someone said, well, I've got a stable Apparently it's better than nothing. I'm not so sure, but this is not what happened. Mary gave birth to Jesus in a house in Bethlehem. And I want to defend that statement to you. I want to show you why. And I could point you to some of the resources and and tools and, and, and books and scholars that I drew on this this week. But let's start with the very basic idea of Middle Eastern hospitality. In the land of the Bible, both ancient times and modern times, Showing hospitality to strangers was one of the most important duties you could carry out in your life. So think, remember last spring, Abraham, the angels show up and he goes and he, you know, kills a fattened calf and bakes 60 pounds of bread for them. Remember Lot, you know, come into my house. That was typical. I mean, maybe not the 60 pounds of bread or whatever it was, but the, the Middle East in both ancient times and present times has a high, high, high value on showing hospitality to strangers. You do not let a stranger pass by without caring for them. So there's simply no way in the town of Bethlehem that Mary and Joseph would show up and not be given a place to stay in someone's house. That's just, that's impossible in the world of the Bible. Especially given that Joseph belonged to that town very well could have had family in that town, but even if he was a complete stranger, the people in that town would have done whatever they could to show hospitality to a man and his pregnant betrothed wife. So second, there's the word manger. So we've talked about hospitality as a reason for why they were in a home. Second is the word manger. You think, well, yeah, manger feeding trough for animals and animals are kept in barns not in ancient Israel. The people in this time at night didn't keep their animals in barns because if they did, they'd get stolen. They didn't have security systems. At night, they brought their animals into their homes where the animals would be secure and where the animals would provide some heat. So this is very well attested in the archaeology. I could show you pictures of, of ancient Israelite homes. We have tons of evidence for this. We know that the homes in this time were were fairly basic. Uh, Generally, they were were one room. That's why Jesus could say, uh, you put a lamp on a stand and it gives light to what? All the house, right? Because they were generally pretty basic one room type structures, unless you were very rich, but most of the people here wouldn't have been. And And in your basic house, off to the one side was a place for the animals, where at night you would bring them in and tie them up. This part was often built lower than the rest of the house so that the animals' straw bedding and their droppings could be easily cleaned out in the morning. But it was within the house. It's interesting, in 1 Samuel 28, 24, we read the woman had a fatted calf in the house. Right, that's when Saul goes to the, the witch of Endor and she has a fatted calf in the house and cooks it for him. I don't know if you've read that before and thought, man, she kept this cow as a house pet and then she, and then she kills it? Like that's, that's kind of, no. It's that at night, your cows were in the house. That's what you did. You tied them up. And because that section was lower, 
for, for cows at least, mangers were often not wood structures, but were simply depressions cut into the stone floor of of the main level. So it's like I'm up here on the platform. Imagine this is the main level and then the lower level down there in front of the chairs here is where the cows would be and the animals and the, and the, the, the manger would be just a depression cut out right at the floor level to hold straw to put the baby, or, well, she put the baby in. Now sometimes mangers for sheep could be wood structures that were smaller put down there. But here's what's really important is that is that animals and mangers were found inside of homes. Now, another main feature that homes often had, maybe always had, is a guest room. Remember how important hospitality was? Homes had a guest room. Sometimes it was off to the side. Sometimes it was up on the roof. You know, like when Elijah says to, to, the, to the lady, prepare a guest room for me, and we're like, well, that's kind of demanding. But no, like everybody had a guest room. He's just saying, I'm, I'm coming to use what you have because hospitality was so important. And so as we think of, of what verse 7 says, that there was no place for them in the inn, that word inn almost certainly does not mean a hotel. It almost certainly means guest room. Let me explain for you why. First reason, every home had a guest room. And there's no way that in a town like that they would have let Mary and Joseph stay in a hotel. Second reason, later on in Luke's gospel, in chapter 10, when he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, he talks about an inn and an innkeeper. Remember, the Good Samaritan takes the man that was, got, that was beat up, takes him to an inn and pays the innkeeper some money. So that's a professional motel kind of idea. And in the original language, in, in, in Greek, it's a totally different word than the word that he uses here in chapter 2. So when Luke wants to talk about a professional inn, he uses a different word. Third reason, this word for inn that, that, that Luke uses here is used one other place or one other setting in the New Testament. And it's when Jesus is going to eat the Last Supper with his disciples. Luke twenty two eleven. He tells his disciples to go into Jerusalem, find a man carrying a jar of water, follow that man into a house, and then tell the master of the house, so quote, tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? It's in, in the original language, that's the exact same word that Luke uses here. And if you have an ESV Bible, you're going to have a, a, a little text note. For me, beside the in, I've got a W. And if you go find that, it points you to Luke 22:11, indicating it's the same word in Greek. So Jesus goes to have the Last Supper. He finds a house in Jerusalem, which likely was a bigger house, and they eat in the guest room. Almost certainly, it's telling us here that Joseph and Mary, or Mary at least, because Joseph might have been outside, laid Jesus in a manger, which would have been connected to the main area of a house because there was no room in the guest room. I'm not sure why the ESV translates it as in, but I do know that some newer translations that I still, I still think the ESV is, is, is uh, significantly more trustworthy. But a couple of newer translations like the, the NIV 19, uh, 2011 or the CSB, they both say guest room. So you, you, can, you can check it with some of those other translations. So there is no room for them in the guest room, which I know challenges years of thinking about this passage and maybe you're like i don't know about this chris i'm gonna go do some research for myself to make sure that you're not pulling the wool over my eyes please go do it i, I invite you to, to to do that by the way wool that wasn't a wasn't a pun about mangers and stuff anyways um i encourage you to do that but but i i think um one of the resources i would point you to is is, is a book called jesus through middle eastern eyes uh, by kenneth bailey it's a scholar who lived and studied in the middle east for most of his life taught at universities in cairo and 
I think Damascus or places like that and, and studied and lived in Middle Eastern homes and, and his study of the area brought these things to his attention and he was able to see that actually people have been seeing these things for a while. But here in the West, we tend to get stuck in some traditions. So why were Mary and Joseph not in the guest room? We don't know. Maybe they weren't as important. Maybe it was older, more important people that got the guest room. Maybe they didn't get there in time. We, we, don't, we don't know. So yes, yes, there is this element of there being no room for them in the normal place that they would be as guests. The normal place for them would be the guest room. And there's no room for them there. So Mary gives birth in the house in the main area and lays her baby in out there what was probably the safest place which was the manger now with this picture this helps us see as we go back to the bigger idea that this was in a house and it also helps us see that in that house was almost certainly more people than just Mary and Joseph there were other people close by so in a traditional birth someone's given birth there's a midwife in the town and she comes and she helps and with her a bunch of other ladies and the men would be kicked out like we've talked about and Mary would have been attended to by a number of ladies who had practice doing this kind of thing as they helped her bring this child into the world. If you've ever been at a birth, if you've ever, and if you can just imagine a a birth in a town with a bunch of people around like this, It was not a silent night. I'm sorry, but it wasn't. All was not calm. That should not be the picture that we have in our heads. Instead, we should think of a young woman drenched in sweat in the middle of a bustling Jewish home surrounded by the ladies of that town who together with her received a crying, messy little baby boy. And then we should picture that exhausted young mom after nursing her baby and wrapping him up in the custom of the day, laying him to sleep in one of the safest places, a manger, where, yes, animals would look down at him. Surrounded by animals, but also a bunch of people who would have ooed and awed over that baby and thanked God for a safe delivery up until a bunch of shepherds knocked at the door. Verse 16 says the shepherds found Mary and Joseph and the baby. It doesn't say there was no one else with them. They were in a house surrounded by normal people, the normal people that Jesus had come to save. So I, I really want to keep going because I, I just love the angel's announcement. It just feels almost wrong to stop here. But let's just ask, why, why does this matter? Like, why did I f- feel the need to pop some Christmas bubbles this morning? And does this really change anything for us? Well, let's answer that second question. In a sense, this doesn't really change anything. Jesus was born in the little town of Bethlehem, laid in a manger with animals nearby because there was no room in the normal place for guests. Mary and Joseph had little privacy, little space to themselves as they became a family together that night. Those are familiar parts of the story and they're true. But on the other hand, we could say that this more accurate picture of Christ's birth does help refocus the story in some important ways as it shows us Jesus in some really important ways. So let's think of three ways, three ways that this refocused remembering of Christmas helps us see Jesus. You could add to this list, but I I, I want to point out three. The first is I think this helps us see the humanness of Jesus. Seeing Jesus' birth this way helps capture his humanity in that that it helps us see that Jesus' birth wasn't all that different from many other births in Bethlehem at this time. It was along the same lines as most other births in Bethlehem. Babies weren't born in hospitals. They were born in homes. They were born without heart rate monitors or epidurals, just like Jesus. 
If they were born at night, then animals were nearby for every baby, just like Jesus. Every home stunk like donkeys and cows and sheep. Babies were wrapped in swaddling cloths, just like Jesus. Jesus was born in the human way, the way most other humans in that time and that place were born. That means the little Lord Jesus, lots of crying he probably made. He was fully human And we should expect that his birth was full of the pain and noise and blood that every human birth was. And I think it's appropriate for us to be stunned by this in a a fresh way. Just think, John 1, 1 and 14, in the beginning was the word. And the word became flesh. Just think about that. Think of how messy and vulnerable that process of becoming flesh was for the Lord Jesus. As he entered the world he made, he could have just shown up in a body. But he came into this world the same way that each one of us did. He experienced firsthand the birth process that he designed. And the pain of the curse of painful labor that he, as a member of the Trinity, had put on the human race in response to our sin. He tasted it all. Marvel at the humanness of Jesus. Second, we want to notice the Jewishness of Jesus. There's something about Jesus being born under a generic night sky in a generic barn that looks just like ours with animals all around that that feels kind of international, maybe ethnically neutral, maybe kind of Western. But there's something about Jesus being born to a Jewish girl in a Jewish house, most likely surrounded by a group of bustling Jewish ladies, most likely welcomed into the arms of a Jewish family, most likely ooed and awed over by a welcoming Jewish town, people showing up the next day to see the new baby that was born. It helps us understand in a richer way that Jesus was and is the Jewish Messiah. Jesus came to ransom captive Israel. Jesus is not white. That makes it all the more rich for us to see what we've seen in First Peter in recent weeks, right? That through the work of Jesus, all who believe in him from whatever nation they're from are invited to become a new nation. They're made into one new people of God where regardless of our ethnicity, we're, we're one people together. And that won't feel special to us unless we remember that our natural human state is outsiders. We weren't Jews. We, we weren't part of the people of God. We need to remember, this is what Paul commanded us in Ephesians 2, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Go to worship him at the temple and you'd see a wall saying Gentiles cross this line and you die. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, by the blood of that little Jewish baby. The miracle and the wonder of us being invited into the new covenant people of God is heightened when we remember naturally we're outsiders. We have a Jewish savior Long before, listen to this, this this thought just struck me this week. Long before you received Jesus as Lord and Savior, he was received by the open arms of Jewish people in a little Jewish town who welcomed that baby. Think think of what it was like in the last couple of weeks as as the new babies have come here and, and we've gathered around and held. That almost certainly happened for Jesus in Bethlehem. Long before he came into your life, he came into their world. 
And you and I, through Jesus, have been invited into a family that's not ours by birth, but now is by grace. There's so much more we could say here, but marvel at the, and just just enjoy the Jewishness of Jesus. Third, marvel at the kindness of Jesus. How can you miss the kindness of Jesus here? How absolutely kind he is to come for us like this. How stunning his humble love is. And should this kindness not shape our hearts? Should it not shape our hearts on on the one hand to to be ready to receive kindness? I was talking to someone recently who knows the Lord, but they're in a vulnerable spot and they're having such a hard time letting other people take care of them. They want so strongly to be able to fix their own problems and take care of themselves because that's what we do. We're conservatives, you know. We don't let other people pick up our slack. We carry our own load. And it just made me pray that the gospel would sink deeper into their heart because as Christians, we are a people who have received in the incredible kindness of Jesus. I mean, can you just imagine if a friend did half as much for you as Jesus did? Like, can you imagine if you were in a hard spot and a friend drove 12 hours through the night through a snowstorm just to show up at your door, just to take care of you? How would you, how would you feel? Think how much more Jesus did descending from heaven to earth to be born like this, going through all of that to bring you to himself. Should that not shape our hearts to, to, to recognize that we need that? We don't have it all together. We can't take care of ourselves. Enjoy receiving the kindness of Jesus who did all this, came all this way to bring you to himself. And should this kindness of Jesus not shape our hearts to extend that same kindness to others? Look at Jesus's first Christmas. You've heard me say this before, and I will surely say it again, but we can't miss how ironic it is that in the West, Christmas for so many of us, has become a holiday where we only ever spend time with people like us who are close to us in comfortable settings. And it's a time of year that, as Brad drew attention to, is so often achingly lonely for those who don't have friends or family nearby. And then we consider Jesus spent his birthday in the kind of setting that that we've considered here this morning. It's not wrong to enjoy a cozy Christmas celebration with your family or friends. There's nothing wrong with that. Thank Jesus for making that possible. But if our whole life is one string of nonstop cozy celebrations with people that we like who are like us, Are we not missing the heart of Jesus? If Jesus came down from heaven to earth to be born like this in a dirty Jewish home next to some animals, and the spirit of that same Jesus is in us, then should not his presence in us make us look around at the lonely and the needy and the messy people in this world who need him? And who we can bring him to. We're going we're gonna to end this morning by singing a song about God's gift to us on Christmas. We're going to sing, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And I hope that the words to this song feel a little bit more lively to you after this time in Luke 2. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift was given. Not silent if you were standing outside the door, but silent as far as Caesar was concerned, silent as far as the world was concerned. And yet it was through that small and insignificant event that salvation came to the world and Christ dwells with us even today. What you have to offer others may feel small and insignificant to you. 
but don't underestimate what God is able to do with the offering of a life that says, Jesus, what you did for me, I'm willing to go and do for others as best as I can, empowered by you, by your help, with your spirit. Jesus says, the Father sends me, so I am sending you. Let's ask the Lord to, as we enjoy what he did for us, to so bend our hearts in the same direction towards a world that still desperately needs his love, towards family members who so desperately need his love, towards friends and neighbors who so desperately need his love. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so thankful that you were born on that day, night. We don't know what hour it was. But that a tired Jewish girl brought you into this world and you were held and marveled at by those people in that little town of Bethlehem. Jesus, thank you that you really experienced every last drop of what it means to be human. Never once sinning, but feeling the effects of sin so much. So Jesus, we, we marvel at your humanity. We are grateful to remember your, your Jewishness and the beauty, the beauty of ethnicity, the beauty of this multi-ethnic people of God. And, and Lord, we want to be stunned by your kindness. We want to be shaped by your kindness. We want to be shaped by your hospitality. Would you help us, Lord, to know as we celebrate Christmas in various ways today and tomorrow and in these next days, would you help our hearts, Jesus, to have the same bent as yours towards the mess, towards the need, towards the dirt, towards those who need you? Would you empower us to do this? Would you use us, Lord, to repeat the sounding joy that more hearts may prepare you room. We ask this in Jesus' name, for your sake, for your glory. Amen.